title of the message this morning is A Better King. A Better King. Last week we went through Hebrews chapter 10 verses 11 through 18. And, um, and so we've already covered these two verses. <laughs> and I, I warned you last week that we would, we would be coming back to them. Because as we covered them last week, we were looking at them in light of um, the, the idea of God forgiving sin. And so we were, we were looking at this reality of Christ being seated at the right hand of God and waiting until his enemies become his footstool uh, in light of that, of that concept, of that topic of, of forgiveness of sin. And so I wanted to come back this morning and, and look at those two verses again in a little bit more detail and a little bit more depth and, and a little bit more broader reference in Scripture as well because there's more to that statement than just the, the position of of forgiveness, the position that we see there of Christ sitting down and, and it being a, a finality to the work that he has done. It is that, and we rightfully saw that last week, but I, I want to take a, a deeper dive into what exactly it's talking about here. Um, and so the, the title of the message this morning is A Better King. The big idea is this, that because Jesus is the better priest, having offered the better sacrifice, he reigns as the better king, both now and forever. Let me say that again. Because Jesus is the better priest, having offered the better sacrifice, he reigns as the better king, both now and forever. If you remember just a few chapters back in the book of Hebrews, we saw an introduction of a character by the name of Melchizedek. Right, And the interesting thing about Melchizedek, lots of interesting things about Melchizedek, even though we don't have a lot of information about him, but one of them is that he, is, he was both a high priest of God or a priest of God, and he was also a king. So he, he served both positions as a priest of God and as a king of, of a nation. And so when, when we come to Hebrews, we're, we're seeing Jesus compared to all these different things, right? That's why the kind of the, the sub-theme of Hebrews that we've given it, even in the little logo here, says Christ preeminent, right? The, the, the theme that we see throughout the book of Hebrews is Jesus Christ is preeminent. And we see that he is greater than all these things that we've seen so far, greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than even Melchizedek. But he's after the order of Melchizedek. And we've seen several chapters now where the author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus in light of the priestly order of Melchizedek, talking about how his order, his priestly order is greater than that of Aaron and, and, and the Levitical priests. And, and we've seen that his sacrifice is better. His, his priestliness is better. And, and yet there is this phrase here that's come up a couple of times in the book of Hebrews, and it's often quoted, quoted from Psalm uh, 110. And, and we see that he's not, Jesus is not just a priest. He's not just a high priest, even though we spent a bunch of time looking at that. But he is also king. He is also king. Just like Melchizedek was priest and king, Jesus Christ is also the greatest priest and the greatest king. 
And so we're going to look at that reality this morning as we dive into uh, chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. But I want to, I want to just give a caveat here that this is a, a very large topic. <laughs> when, we, when we consider the, the topic of the kingdom of God, of Jesus ruling and reigning as king, there's a lot of scripture that we could go to. There's a lot of scripture that we could dive into even more deeply than we will this morning. So, so I want you to be aware that what we, what we look at this morning is really just going to be scratching the surface. It's just going to be taking some of the, the basic, clear things in Scripture that it gives us. Um, obviously, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of these verses will probably lead you off into different avenues of uh, eschatology, end times, uh, prophecy, things like that. And, and we're not going to go there this morning, all right? We're not going to delve into that. We're just going to look at some basic truths about Jesus Christ because I, and His rule and reign, because I, I feel like in many ways we can... Um, we can forget the fact that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. Um, we can get caught up in the things of this world, and we can get caught up in the, even the things that the, that the world is, is trying to do against us and against Christ, and we can forget that Jesus Christ is actually ruling and reigning. And so that's the first thing that I want us to see this morning. That is the reality of Jesus' reign. The reality of Jesus' reign is very clear right here in verse number 12. It says, But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You know, it's interesting, this phrase is, uh, is kind of bookending the, the book of Hebrews, if you go back and remember in chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the, pow- by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Just a few verses later in verse 8, it says, But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. A few verses later in chapter one, it says this, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool for your feet. So there in the very first chapter, we have multiple instances of this reality that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. We have this notice of of his throne and of his scepter. We have him sitting at the right hand of the Father. We have him waiting until everything, all of his enemies are put under his feet. But not only do we have uh, the the beginning of the chapter, kind of the beginning of all of the, the theological arguments uh, if you want to say that, if you know, this is one of the reasons I think a lot of people believe Paul was, was either the writer or maybe the person who preached uh, the sermon that, that Hebrews came from, uh, because it's, it's very Pauline. We have 11 chapters of, of theology, right? And then we have a couple of chapters of kind of an application here. So that was the beginning of the theology, the, the, the theological arguments is that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. And then we come to chapter 12, and we see a very similar thing. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So before he gets into the theology arguments, Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. Before he gets into the application, Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. And if we're not careful, it's easy to miss that. And here, right here in chapter 10, he again brings us to this conclusion in, in verses 12 and 13 that Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the Father. He is in a place of authority. We see this phrase, sitting at the right hand of God, and, and that concept is, is a concept of power and strength and might and authority. That's usually the, the idea when you say somebody is my, is my right hand man, that's the, somebody who's, who's going to have your authority to do things, is going to have the, the ability to do what, what you would like him to do. Usually it's, it's a delegated position. And so we see Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. He, he has all the power and all the authority of God at the right hand, sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is not unique to Hebrews. We see this phrase uh, in multiple places. Again, Psalm 110, which is quoted uh, throughout the New Testament. Verse 1 says, the, the Lord, speaking of God, says to my Lord, this is David writing this, and he's speaking of Christ. So, or the Messiah. So the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 to 65 says this. This is during uh, their, their trial of Jesus. It says this, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness, witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. I think they understood what he was saying, don't you? He has all authority. He is at the right hand of his Father. 1 Peter 3, verse 22 says this, who, speaking of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And there's more uh, verses we'll get to uh, in other places this morning. But over and over and over again in the New Testament, we see this reality that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. And it's interesting that it says that after he has done the work that God has sent him to do, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of God. And so he is actively ruling even now. We'll take a look at that here more in the, in the coming minutes. Secondly, I want to see the significance of Jesus' reign. The significance of Jesus' reign. This is something um, that I've been thinking about for several weeks, even just thinking about this phrase, uh, that he, he's sitting at the right hand of God. And we know that Jesus is God. We know that Jesus is God. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jumping down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is God. That's what it's talking about. The Word incarnate, Jesus Christ, is fully God. And we, and we know that he is fully God. And we know that as God, he is creator. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we see that he is not only just God, but he is the God who created everything. He has, he has ownership of everything. We see his power and his authority as he walked this earth. If you can just think back through, we, for a second time, we won't look at all these passages for this, but just think back through Jesus Christ and his ministry and all the different ways that he showed his power and his authority and that he is truly God. We think of his authority over sickness as he causes healing, his authority over demons as he casts them out, his authority over nature as he calms the seas. His authority over religious teachers as he condemns their piety. And his authority over sin as he claims the power to forgive. Jesus has displayed in the Gospels all of this authority. And yet we see that there seems to be a need for Jesus to be given authority. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus is given authority. And, and I'll be honest with you, I hadn't really thought about that too much myself. I, you know, it just, it, it's just in the Bible. It, the, you know, scripture says it, Jesus says it in multiple places. Um, but Jesus is God. Why would God have to give God authority? In, um, in John chapter 5, Verses 22 through 23, Jesus is saying this. He says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So we have one reason for that authority is so that Christ would be honored for who he is. Verses 26 through 27 in the same chapter. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he, is the, he has given him authority. Let me say that again. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Why does the Father have to give Jesus authority? I think the simple answer is because Jesus became man. Because Jesus became man. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. We just preached through Philippians not that long ago. You, you recognize these verses. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness 
of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God the Father had to give Jesus Christ the Son authority and power because Jesus is man. Now, I wrote this next paragraph down because I want, you, I want it to be very specific and very clear. So I might say this twice here. Um, so bear with me. But this idea, this concept, if we're not careful, can lead us into a lot of false teaching, can lead us into bad theology. So I want to make sure that we understand what Scripture is saying. All right? By taking on human flesh, the Son of God... The second person of the Trinity became something that he had never been before in all of eternity past. And it is this nature of humanity that must be given the authority by the Father to accomplish the task for which he was sent. Jesus did not for one second cease to be God. Jesus did not for one second lose his authority as God. However, with his eternal glory being veiled in human flesh, Jesus humbled himself in order that the Father could bestow the authority he already possessed, being fully God, to him who is also now fully man. It is as the God-man that Jesus, as the perfect Adam, redeems us and by doing so has earned the right to rule and reign. Have you ever thought about that before? Before time began, Jesus didn't have a body. He was spirit, just like God, just like the Holy Spirit. He was fully God. And yet when he came to earth, God with us, God incarnate, he became not only fully God, but also fully man. And it's hard for us to understand that. It's hard for us to to wrap our minds around that reality, around that truth. But his glory as fully God, and, and even in some cases, apparently his rights and his authority as fully God is veiled because he has taken on humanity. And he, as the perfect Adam, is given authority by God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The first Adam was given to rule. He was given rule and dominion over the creation of God. But he fell. He fell. But Christ did not fail. Christ, the perfect Adam, has redeemed us. And it is because of his perfect work and sacrifice that he is worthy of reigning over all things. Not just as God, but as the God-man. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus is ruling and reigning not just as God, 
but as the God-man. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, again says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. That's the prerequisite. That's the prerequisite for him ruling and reigning now and forever. When Christ had offered a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1, 3-4, again, see this. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's, that's everything that he does as fully God. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is a more excellent than theirs. Christ rules and reigns as the God-man. Colossians 2, 13-15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How was the triumph achieved? Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, the continuation of that passage we just looked at a minute ago, starting in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is reigning. And his reign is significant because of the work that he, as the God-man, has done to redeem us. Have you ever thought about that before? Why is it significant that Jesus is ruling and reigning? Because he has bought us. He has redeemed us. Next, I want to look at the extent of Jesus' reign the extent of Jesus' reign. Again, we see that he, in verses 10 through 12, we see that he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. We have a, a kind of a theological phrase that we, that we use to understand the extent of Jesus' reign. And that theological phrase is this, that Jesus' reign is both now and not yet both now and not yet. Let's look at the now. It says right here that he sat down. He took authority. He sat down at the right hand of God. He is currently, from the time that he had wrote, was, uh, was taken up into heaven, from that point on, he has been ruling and reigning. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 through 23, it says, and what is the immeasurable, he's praying, he's telling the, the Ephesians what he's praying for them to, to see. And he says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus' current place of authority and rule is over lots of things. Did you notice those as we went through? It's over all rule. Any rule that you can find in this earth, outside this earth, I don't know if there's any rule outside this earth, the laws of science, all rule, Jesus, his place of authority is over that. His place of authority and rule is over all other authority. He is over all other authority. It doesn't matter who who, who the president is. It doesn't matter who your boss is. It doesn't matter who the, the king or the dictator or the president or, or whoever's in, in the, a Congress or what other governing body that you may find throughout this world. It doesn't matter. God, Jesus Christ, is ruling and reigning above all of them, above all power. No matter how much power and wealth anyone can accumulate, God, Jesus Christ, the God-man, is above all. He's above all dominion. He is above every name, every name. Not just when he ascended, but forever. Did you notice that? There will never, ever, ever be a name greater than Jesus of Nazareth. His name is above all other names for all time. Jesus currently acts with authority and rule in a way that is directed towards the church. He is currently in authority over everything, but his actions, from what we can tell in Scripture, currently are directed towards his church. He is the head of the church as its Savior. He is the head of the church as its Savior. John 17, in that that great prayer that Jesus prays, That high priestly prayer begins like this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus' purpose his, his actions as ruling and reigning right now is to build his church. Is to build his church. Is to save his people. Secondly, it's to be the church's leader. It's to be the church's leader. If you remember back there at the end of that passage in, in Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, it said, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, but Ephesians 5, verses 23 through 27, that famous passage dealing with marriage, right? Well, it's not just dealing with marriage. It's showing us who Christ is in relation to the church. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ is using his rule and authority at this moment to bring those who will be part of his church into his church through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is using his rule and authority to change those who are a part of his body into his own image, to make us more like Jesus Christ, to make us without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He is ruling and reigning and active. Jesus is ruling and reigning now with all authority over all people for the purpose of building his church. But we have now and not yet. Now and not yet. It says there that he will reign until his enemies are made his footstool. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. You made him a little low, a little while, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Can you say amen to that? At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. We Unfortunately, we see what looks like everything not in subjection to him. To us, in our, in our veiled understanding, in our veiled vision of what is going on, we, we often look at this world and see everything is chaotic. Everything is anti-Christ. Everything is going against everything that we desire. And we know that Christ desires for, for his church. And it be, can become easy for us to, uh, to get a wrong view of what's going on if we're not careful. It can become easy for us to, to maybe get depressed and, and worried about the things that are going on in our world, but yet we need to remember that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning, and he is ruling and reigning right now to build his church, and someday he will rule and reign over everything in a way that is obvious and clear. He will rule and reign 1 Corinthians 15, 12, 24 through 26 says this, Then comes the end, when he, speaking of Jesus, delivers the kingdom, of God, kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus is reigning now building his church, and once that is complete, he, we will see him reign over every enemy, ending with death itself. Are you thankful for that reality? Even death will be put under his feet. Lastly, I want to look at the implications of Jesus' reign. The implications of Jesus' reign. As we've looked at these realities here in verses 12 through 13. We've looked at all these other scriptures. There's a reality that uh, of Jesus' reign that, that we need to take heart, that we need to apply. 
The first one is that we must all face judgment. We must all face judgment. If you remember uh, in that John passage, Jesus was saying that the Father has given the Son the right to judge. The Father has given the Son the right to judge. Matthew 25, this is a long passage, but we'll read the whole thing. Verses 31 through 46 says this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, it's talking about Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, and then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you, see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to the, one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me. You cursed into the ever eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal punishment life. Jesus, the king on his throne, will judge everyone. He will judge everyone. We see that again in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is often only associated uh, by, to, uh, to those who are unbelievers, I don't know that that's necessarily accurate, but we often associate 1st, 2nd Corinthians 5.10 with believers, and it says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus Christ is King. Jesus Christ is ruling and is reigning. Jesus Christ will rule and will reign and he will judge. We will all stand 
before the God-man, the judge of all the earth. Not only will we, must we all be judged, but we must proclaim the gospel. We must proclaim the gospel. Of course, we must proclaim the gospel because there's judgment coming, right? There's judgment coming to those who are not in the, in the body of Christ, who have not received Jesus Christ as their Savior. Judgment is coming. That in and of itself should cause us to want to go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the fact that Jesus rules and reigns not just as judge, but also because he has authority to build his church. That should drive us as well. We often skip this part in Matthew chapter 28, but starting in verse 16, it says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, remember this is after he's risen. This is after he's, he has even visited them, most likely, uh, because this is where he ascends. He's already visited them uh, as they were hiding in the room, and, and he's twice, once without Thomas and once with Thomas, right? We, we look at Thomas, call him Doubting Thomas. But, so they've already been through this. It says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. But what? But some doubted. Jesus has died on the cross, has risen from the dead, is standing before them physically, and yet some doubted. Jesus came to them and said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does he say in response to that? Therefore, go. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is literally no reason No reason that we as followers of Christ should ever fear speaking the gospel. None. Because if we truly believe what Jesus Christ has said, if we truly believe that all authority and all power has been given to him in heaven and on earth, and he has commissioned us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and not only that, but he is with us always, Why do we ever fear? It's because we don't really believe that Jesus is ruling and reigning now. Oh, we look forward. We we know, yep, he's going to come back. Man, he's going to come back and he's going to make everything right and he's going to set everybody straight and he's going to be glorified and he's going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The reality is he already is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He already is ruling and reigning and he is going to judge and he calls us, he commands us based on his authority and based on his presence with us to go out and to make disciples of all the nations. 
And yet we cower and we fear and we hide because we really don't believe that he's ruling and reigning. The third implication of Christ's reign is that we must live for our king. We must live for our king. Hebrews chapter 13. We'll get there in a couple months. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 14 through 16 says this, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, let, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If we really believe that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning, we will recognize the fact that we will all face judgment. We will, we will recognize the fact that he is in full authority and that he has commanded us to go in his authority and with him to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and we will live in a way that pleases our king because we have a better king. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the perfect priest offering the perfect sacrifice is the perfect king, the king of kings, and the Lord of Lords, I want to close, oddly enough, for a second sermon in a row with a, a song, lyrics. This one's by Matt Boswell. Just think about some of the words here. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ, who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery, he the perfect son of man. In his living and his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam, come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Come behold the wondrous mystery slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. He is ruling and he is reigning and he is returning. The question is, are we ready? Are we ready when he comes? Are we not just believers? Have we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ? But are we, are we spreading the gospel? Are we preaching the gospel regardless of what the world does and how it responds? Are we proclaiming the gospel of Christ and the authority of Jesus Christ? And are we living in such a way that pleases him? If you're not this morning, it's time to make that right. 
It's time to come to the Father if you're not saved. It's time to repent of not being a gospel presenter, not being an ambassador for Christ. If you're not living in a way that God would desire you to live, it's time to confess. Repent and follow after Christ. Jesus, because Jesus is the better priest, having offered the better sacrifice, he reigns as the better king now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is our representative in so many ways. He is our representative as our sacrifice. That he could take our place, bear on himself the wrath that was due to us because of our sin. And that he could give us righteousness that, that is not our own. And even now, Father, as we think about him as, as the God-man for all eternity, it is hard to comprehend, Lord. But as the perfect Adam, he rules and reigns over everything because he has done what we could not do in redeeming a people to yourself. Father, we thank you that we have been given the grace to be a part of your people, to be a kingdom and priests to God, as Revelation describes it. We thank you for your grace in giving us salvation. We thank you for your grace and and working in our lives to change us, to become more like the image of Christ. We we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the power of Christ that, that we know all our job is simply to proclaim and your job is to work in the hearts of men. And so Lord, I pray that we would realize that. I pray that we would truly grasp the reality of your rule and reign, of Christ's rule and reign, and that it would embolden us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to our family members, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers. That we would not be just known as somebody who goes to church or even somebody who claims the name Christian or even, even just a really good person. But the people would know that we love Christ and we love them and we desire for them to be a part of the body of Christ. We desire for them to know Christ. We desire for them to be freed from the power and the penalty of sin. Father, forgive us for our selfishness, for our pride, for our unwillingness to believe that you have all authority and that you have sent us with that authority. And that no matter how the world responds, you are doing your work to build your church, both here and around the world. And we glorify you and we praise you for that reality. And we thank you for allowing us to participate in that process. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.